Ranked one of America's top research universities, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee plays a vital role in shaping the future of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. UWM's diversity, academic excellence, and world-class research contribute to the region's economic development and quality of life. Meet the people behind the creativity and discoveries on UWM Today. Here's the host, Tom Lujak, Vice Chancellor of University Relations. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, predicts that climate change will accelerate the intensity of hurricanes in the coming century. Already, the maximum sustained winds of hurricanes are getting stronger, and 2020 was the most active hurricane season on record. On this edition of UWM Today, we're talking with two UWM meteorologists who specialize in forecasting these large storm events. Getting those forecasts right is important because much of the U.S. economy is affected by the weather. Our guests are Paul Rober, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at UWM, and Clark Evans, also a professor in atmospheric sciences. Clark recently received a National Science Foundation grant to investigate why some hurricane winds actually increase when they hit the land. Welcome to both of you, gentlemen. Good to have you on today's program. And I'm going to begin with you, Paul. Meteorologists have been forecasting hurricanes for decades. So what's different now in the way that those forecasts are actually done? So once upon a time, people used to observe waves crashing on the beach and get some sense of what was happening offshore. Uh, we also have ship reports and things like that that allowed people to at least get some idea of what was going on offshore. Today, we have many, many different ways of doing that. So the observational systems themselves are much better. We have satellite. We have some radar capacity to detect some things. Uh, and we have uh, numerical weather prediction models that actually solve the dynamical equations that describe the fluid atmosphere and are used uh, to assist forecasters in making predictions about hurricanes. And we also do some advanced post-processing, it's called, of those model data and observational data to try to add some additional skill to those forecasts. So there's a combination of different methods that are used today to use all the technologies that we have available. Is there too much data for you, for you to be able to manage given all those different sources you just referenced? I'd, I'd say no in the case of hurricanes. Um, forecasters talk a lot about being overwhelmed with data, but I think it's less an issue for tropical cyclone forecasting. The big problem we have there is, relatively speaking, given the size of hurricanes, which is smaller than some of the weather systems we forecast, we don't have dense enough observations to be able to really get a good sense for what's really going on in those systems, either in space or in time. So that's the biggest limitation that forecasters have. Yeah. Well, Clark, um, I'm curious about the NSF grant that you received. Um, what exactly are you studying and how does that relate to all of the data that Paul just described? Sure. So we're looking to study what happens to these storms after they make landfall. Usually storms, once they have made landfall, decay at a fairly steady rate. There's a lot more friction. The land is a lot rougher than the water, as anybody who's been on, out on Lake Michigan can tell you from experience. And that increased roughness over the land helps to decay the winds to cause them to spin down. 
It's also drier over the land as compared to over the water. So that water that serves as the storm's energy source is lost by and large once a storm has made landfall. And the combination of those effects leads to the storm spinning down. But there's a small subset, especially here in the United States. It's a little more frequent elsewhere in the world, particularly in Australia. But there's a small subset of these storms that seem to be able to maintain or even re-intensify, uh, increasing their maximum winds after they have made landfall, some one, two, three days after they have done so. So alongside a student and hopefully another student to join in, a, in the fall, we're looking to use numerical models to be able to test hypotheses about the energy exchanges of heat and moisture from the underlying ground to the air that lies just above that, that could perhaps be accounting for this observed increase in intensity for these uh, subset of storms. In our case, we're, we have the data that we need, we believe, uh, very, very dense observations over the land, but we don't know a lot about the underlying physics of the problem. And so we can use models where we can tweak the atmosphere, tweak the land in ways that we can't do in real life to be able to test those hypotheses and be able to gain that basic understanding that we need to be able to then translate that to forecasts to say, when you see a forecast of a storm that re-intensifies over land, you can or cannot have confidence in that. Yeah, you know, and, and that's really quite surprising that they're beginning to intensify on land because over the years, as I've watched uh, weather reports, and I'm a former journalist, but as you as you see stories unfold, uh, it always seemed to be a hopeful sign where a day into the hurricane, things are getting better because, uh, because uh, you have hit land. So it's got to be a little concerning uh, or disconcerting to, to see that, um, in fact, people may continue to be in harm's way long after they otherwise might have been feeling pretty good that they, that they missed the, the worst of it. Yes, certainly. But fortunately, most of these storms, even if they do maintain or re-intensify over land, the maximum limit of how strong they can be is much, much lower than what we see over water. And so while they still can cause damage in some rare cases, like the case of Tropical Storm Aaron in Oklahoma in 2007, it's much less uh, significant than what we would see uh, for, say, a major landfalling hurricane. A good recent example with Wisconsin ties is Tropical Depression Cristobal from this past June. It came within about two miles of being the first recorded tropical depression or stronger storm in Wisconsin record history. It just fell short in uh, far northeastern Iowa. But even then, it was a very weak storm with maximum winds of 25 to 30 miles per hour, primarily a summertime rain shower if, if it didn't have a name attached to it. And fortunately, that's what most of these storms tend to be, even if they do maintain or re-intensify over land. Paul, is there a sense that uh, climate change is behind these increased intensities in the, in the storms? Um, that's, a, that's a really difficult question to answer, and especially that's the case on an individual storm basis. Uh, you can sort of make physical arguments as to whether or not storms should become more intense, intense in the future. But even that, there's some controversy controversy over that conclusion. So I'd say that's still pending further analysis. There's good reason to believe it it could go in that direction, but I don't know that the evidence is overwhelmingly in that direction at this point. Paul, Paul uh, uh, Clark mentioned uh, the 
aggressive or intensive use of mathematics in, in forecasting. And uh, this is probably a good point for us to talk about some of the work that you're doing um, in an area that I was intrigued. There's there's a term that's, uh, that's used, it's um, uh, evolutionary uh, programming. Uh, it's something that uh, you've, I think, uh, are using actively now in, in your forecasting. What is that? What's evolutionary programming? So there's a good connection to this, uh, to tropical cyclones, actually. But let me just describe what it is. First of all, boiling it down, it's basically using the principles of evolution to evolve algorithms that make a weather forecast. So essentially, if you have a set of equations, you model them as though they were each an individual, uh, an individual in an ecosystem, and that ecosystem the better performers in terms of the forecast task are the ones that pass on their information to the next generation and so on and so forth. And when you do this, just in all in a, a computer simulation, when you do this, you find that at the end of a number of generations, not very many actually, the algorithms become competitive with other ways of making forecasts. And if you actually use them to again, post-process or, or improve numerical weather prediction forecast, you often get an additional increment of skill relative to what's available from the models itself or other approaches. And one of the reasons for this is, is because it's nonlinear. So a lot of forecasts that we do have a very strong element that's linear, that means you know eight, one plus one equals two. But sometimes there are multiplicative factors that are in there, or exponential growth, those kinds of things that, that might be part of it. And you can't capture that in the usual techniques, but this system really allows you to capture that in a way that's it's harder to do with other approaches. So fundamentally, it's just the way evolution works. And, you know, we've all been in a pandemic. We see how the virus is evolving. Same thing happens in this case for weather forecasts, but in this case for the good instead of for the ill. I was going to say, we don't want a vaccine against this because uh, it sounds <laughs> like it, it actually will lead to better forecast uh, that we can incorporate into our daily lives. Clark, uh, as uh, as I hear Paul describe the uh, way in which he's using programming, will will those same uh, principles apply to the work that you're doing with the National Science Foundation? I would say probably not so much. Uh, the greater applications are toward what we call operational forecasting or that done by agencies like the National Hurricane Center. And that's where Paul and I have recently finished a collaboration and are discussing future collaboration opportunities to apply this evolutionary programming method to hurricane predictions, especially for the high impact cases of rapid intensification, which are becoming more common, especially near landfall as 2020 showed us, as well as rapid weakening of storms, both over the open water as well as near land. How interested are the the people who help us protect our property, uh, prepare for storms? How interested uh, are units of government in these new forms of forecasting? Uh, do you see that uh, that um, what you're doing is in demand, uh, I, or uh, or are people shrugging their shoulders and saying, you know, it is what it is. We'll we'll go with the flow because well, what you're describing is a very you know, intricate and, and complex set of calculations. And I, I guess my basic question is, uh, do other people get it, the people who are policymakers? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, policymakers, probably not. Um, the scientists in the field are beginning 
to get it. Uh, I've found that um, there's really been tremendous growth in overall aspects of machine learning in our field. Uh, there's a, an annual meeting of our professional society and each year over the past few years, there's a particular uh, section of that meeting devoted to artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the amount of talks and attendees at that session has just grown dramatically over the past few years. So in the field, that interest is really growing. As far as my own work and the work that I was collaborating with Clark on, the agencies are interested in the sense that we were funded to actually look at tropical cyclone intensification using this method. And so we do have uh, this method implemented for real-time forecasts of the National Hurricane Center, and they're currently evaluating it to determine whether or not they want to use it as part of their, their regular forecast process. I've also been working with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, on a number of other machine learning applications, including evolutionary programming, especially with the Meteorological Development Laboratory, which is sort of the agency that's responsible for putting the tools out for forecasters around the country. So there is a lot of growing interest in this work. You know, talking about artificial intelligence, a lot of people have enormous hopes that it will help improve the quality of life because we can harness information better. D any any predictions on, on your part, Clark or, or Paul, on whether or not uh, in the relatively near future we're going to be uh, experiencing better, more accurate forecast as a result of these new techniques? I think there's reason to expect that that would be true, but for the hurricane problem, it's particularly challenging because the any sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning technique learns best when it has a lot of examples to be able to learn from. And despite as high impact as these storms are, there still aren't that many intense hurricanes that make landfall or that remain out over the water. We're talking five to 10 a year and ideally we'd have thousands of these storms for these algorithms to be able to learn from. And so I think the field is really iterating toward what the best approach for incorporating these types of methods, whether it be as post-processing, as Paul has talked about, or perhaps something that's even more on the hot topic of the field, implementing these algorithms directly into the dynamical equations, the dynamical models that we've long used to forecast these storms, to be able to blend the best of both worlds within our forecasts. But we have seen over the past 20, 30, 40 years, a steady improvement in our ability to predict the track and intensity of these storms. And I think that we should, we have every reason to expect that to continue, if not hopefully accelerate as we become better informed, I would say, about how to best implement and use these techniques, as well as see new ones develop, because uh, there's always new ones coming online. You're listening to UWM Today here on WUWM. Good to have you with us this week. I'm Tom Lujak, and joining us in our remote studios are Paul Rober. Paul's a UWM Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Sciences, and Clark Evans, a Professor of Atmospheric Sciences, same department as Paul, and we're discussing some of the uh, uh, groundbreaking work that they're doing in uh, helping to predict, better predict, uh, the way in which hurricanes uh, develop and ultimately impact uh, countries, not just here in the U.S., but but around the world. And and let's talk about that a little bit because um, I know that we call big storms hurricanes here, uh, and in other parts of the world, in in the Pacific, um, they've got another title for, or term for it, don't they? 
Yes, they do. Uh, in the Western North Pacific, they're generally referred to as typhoons. And then there are severe cyclones or uh, in Aboriginal languages, willy willies in Australia. So they have slightly different names across the world, but uh, usually our community refers to them more broadly as tropical cyclones. Are they the same? Uh, would they have different names? But basically, if, if you know, could you could you call a tropical cyclone a hurricane or is there something different in the way that uh, that the winds turn or, or the uh, the storm unfolds? So a hurricane is, is something that has winds of 74 miles per hour or greater. Uh, so a tr every tropical cyclone is not a hurricane, but every hurricane is a tropical cyclone. But apart from intensity-based differences, say a tropical storm versus a hurricane, I could call a storm in the Atlantic a typhoon or a storm in the Pacific a hurricane and still be meaning and referring to the same thing. That was something I've always wondered about, and thank you for answering that question. <laughs> pa My Paul, pleasure. I want to I come back to you. As we uh, hear so much talk about uh, the concern over limiting, limiting emissions, which are a contributor to uh, to uh, global warming and and climate change. I'm wondering, as a meteorologist, do you have any sense that that uh, if we're successful, and and by no means is there any guarantee we will be, but if we are successful in getting our arms around the problems that are contributing to climate change, is it possible that we could see eventually us turning the clock back and going to a more normal? weather pattern uh, unfold around the world than, than the direction we're headed in right now? Uh, the short answer, well, <laughs> there is no short answer. <laughs> the answer is um, not on any kind of time scale that you'd be comfortable with because the time in which it takes for the atmosphere ocean system to process carbon dioxide is really long. So perhaps as long as a thousand years. And so so yes, we can we can change things and start to move back, but it takes a really long time to do that. Also, there's sort of embedded systems which have different timescales. I'm thinking in particular about ice in the Earth atmosphere system. And we have discussed in the field whether or not we've already reached a point of no return for Arctic ice and the ice in Greenland in particular. And those are really important both for the sort of radiative balance of the atmosphere, but also the water levels. In particular, Greenland is, is ice that's on the land, and that means any of that ice that melts raises sea level. It's not true of Arctic ice. It's floating on the sea. So if it melts, as Archimedes to told us thousands of years ago, it doesn't matter But it's uh, for sea level, but it does matter as far as how much energy is reflected back to space. And so that still leads to a significant damping on warming if you have that ice versus not having it. So those elements really change the equation quite a bit. I saw a paper a couple of years ago that suggested that, that uh, we may not even be able to get into an ice age, uh, even if the orbital situation pushes us in that direction. So these are long-term cycles that push us into ice ages. But because of the amount of carbon dioxide we've added and other greenhouse gases we've added to the system, it may not be possible to go in that. Well, nobody wants an ice age anyway, especially here in Wisconsin. But uh, uh, regardless, that just tells you how far we've pushed the system if we're close to that sort of transition. 
Is that discouraging to you as meteorologist? <laughs> Since I'm, you, yeah, <laughs> I'm very discouraged. Uh, you know, I've looked at at how we've managed the pandemic in this country, and viewing that as kind of a microcosm of of how we can deal with climate change. The main difference that I see is is again the time. So the the pandemic is something that's very immediate, very obvious. The consequences are right there, and yet we still had a really difficult time. And we're still struggling with how to manage it properly. And you imagine climate change where you have to take action to actually prevent the worst, but the timescale is longer. And so the impacts are not as obvious immediately as something like a pandemic. And so it's it's really hard for me to envision that we can get our hands around this uh, very capably without something significantly changing in terms of how we approach it. I have seen some promising signs recently in terms of, especially with the new administration and really being quite serious about taking this on. It does take a lot more than that though. It takes you know, reorganizing our society essentially, transportation systems, infrastructure, all those kinds of things have to be managed in order for us to be able to really manage it. I think the general population is interested in doing something about it, but we don't have the tools for the most part to be able to do that effectively. And if you look at the European uh, situation where they're able to do that a little bit better, part of that is because um, you know their infrastructure is different and people are more closely spaced, more densely spaced. So it's easier to do that. We're spread out and we don't have an infrastructure for transportation and those kinds of things that allow us to manage that. So, so it's a really complicated and challenging problem for us. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the technology that <clears throat> both of you rely upon uh, in your forecasting work. Um, you talked about algorithms, about the fact that, you know, we, we have uh, models now to, to choose from and, and sort through. What about the actual instrumentation that's used to, to gather data? Uh, are those getting better or will they get better? And will that have any impact uh, in the next decade or two in terms of your ability to tell us what the weather will be like tomorrow or next week or, or next month? Yeah, I would say that they're absolutely getting better. I'll use a key example from hurricane prediction. Uh, a few years ago, NOAA launched a series of satellites called GOES-R, which is a set of satellites stationed well above the Earth at a fixed location that provide a lot of the satellite images that you see on television or online these days. And aboard these satellites was a new platform called the GLM, or Geostationary Lightning Mapper. So this is basically a satellite that has the capability of telling you where lightning is taking place on the Earth at any given point in time over wide areas with very high precision in time and space. Research has shown from other platforms that hurricanes, when you get a lot of lightning very near to the center of the storm, that's a harbinger that the storm is intensifying potentially rapid, rapidly. But we didn't have very strong networks to be able to assess that, especially reliably and for storms well away from land. Now we have that capability and we're seeing ways of trying to incorporate that information into our statistical models as well as our dynamical models to help improve hurricane forecasts. And we see gains like that from instrumentation across all sectors of meteorological forecasts, whether it be satellites for hurricane prediction, ground-based platforms for severe storm analysis and prediction, and onward from there. And Paul can probably cite several examples of his own as well. 
Uh, I don't think we need to. I think that was really good. <laughs> well, Paul, one of the questions I have for you is, um, what about the students? Uh, both you and Clark are are preparing that next generation of meteorologists. Um, how uh, how are they impacted uh, by the amazing developments that have occurred in the last few years, both in terms of the technology and the way in which you model storms? Are they are they excited about this or are they overwhelmed by it? Because it it, it seems like like you truly do have uh, such a huge um, amount of data or information students need to learn in order to put put their their fingers on on the forecasting buttons i think students are, are are challenged as we all were when we were students by the complexity of the discipline but they're also coming in at the best time there's ever been for our field because of the ability for us to start looking at things in ways that we couldn't in the past because of the computational infrastructure because of the data sets that we have available now all of those things are coming together allows us to to really investigate the harder problems which we in just 10 20 years ago were much harder to even consider looking at so it's a great time to be a student well and it's a great time to be a student at uwm we should let our let listeners know that the regular weather forecast they hear on wuwm from innovative weather uh, we can all thank paul rober for uh, starting that uh, that uh, wonderful service. Uh, that's another great way for students to dip their toe into the forecasting business, isn't it? It is. Uh, so we've been in operation since 2007, and we provide weather decision support for uh, interested uh, partners throughout the community. And uh, our students are the ones who are, are communicating uh, the weather forecast in the way that a decision maker needs it. So for example, if you operate Lake Express Ferry, which is one of our partners, they want to know about wave conditions of the lake. If you're uh, an operations manager in We Energies, you want to know about severe storms that might knock out power for the purpose of scheduling crews. So all those things mean you have to put the weather in the specific context that, that a person needs. National Weather Service Director Louis Uccellini wrote a letter to our chancellor and provost uh, commenting on how valuable he thought our program was because of the quality of the students that we produce, many of whom go into the weather service following graduation. So it's really worked well for our students and it's worked well for the field. Well, and again, immediate payback for listeners of WUWM because they get to hear the students deliver those forecasts on a regular basis. It's a great service and, and something that, Paul, I know we're very proud that you launched it and it's great to hear those students um, sharing what they've learned uh, in, in a very meaningful way with, uh, with members of the public. Gentlemen, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. We wish you the very best as you uh, continue your work forecasting both those really big storms, the cyclones and the hurricanes, or was it the willy willy uh, <laughs> in, uh, in uh, Australia? Uh, just a fascinating conversation and we wish you the best as you continue your work. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Paul Rober and Clark Evans, both professors of atmospheric sciences at UWM in the Department of Mathematical Science and College of Letters and Science, our guest on this edition of UWM Today. That's all for this week's program. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week at the same time. Take care, everybody. I'm Tom Lujak. You've been listening to UWM Today with host Tom Lujak the weekly program where you get to meet the people behind one of America's top research universities. 
University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, playing a vital role in shaping the future of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. UWM's diversity, academic excellence, and world-class research contribute to the region's economic development and quality of life. Learn more at uwm.edu.